the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning, San Diego Saints. We are back. We're going to be uh, doing a part two continuance of an earlier um, topic that asked a question. Um, This is based off a book uh, back in 2016 that I uh, wrote called The Blueprint. And the question is off of the byline under the title of that book, which is called, Is God's Bible Design Linear or Circular? Um, We could add a few adjectives to that, which would be, is God's Bible design a Greek straight line, linear, Western, or is it Hebrew, Jewish, circular, or cyclical? And so um, a lot of people might say, well, what's the difference? Why why would that make any difference? And uh, just to give the short answer to that, the difference is if we're dealing with a Hebrew uh, book, we talked uh, last week about the fact that we— we have 66 books in the Bible uh, with 40 authors, and uh, at least 39 out of the 40 uh, were Hebrews. They were Jews. And uh, when you're reading a um, piece of literature, uh, it's important to understand the context of those who wrote it and what are their backgrounds and what influenced them, what motivated them, uh, how did they think. And... Um, we need to answer this question because um, we separate the Bible into two parts. We call one is the Old Testament and the other one is the New Testament. And um, as a Bible school graduate, I can tell you that most of the emphasis of my uh, part-time experience, I was there eight years, finally got a degree, I'm a bachelor's in theology, um, was mostly spent in what is called the New Testament. Um, but the, pro- the problem with that is that it's, if I were to receive a book from somebody and they said, this is an amazing book, it is so life-changing, you won't believe this, and they hand me this book and, and they said, don't read the last two-thirds of the book. I'm sorry, the first two-thirds. Don't bother with that, the first two-thirds. Only read the last third of the book. Well, I'd be 
curious as to, well, if the first two-thirds of the book isn't germane, it's not pertinent, it's not relevant, I mean, why have it as part of the book? And uh, we put a uh, conference on in San Diego about five years ago um, called One New Man in Messiah. And one of our speakers was uh, the rabbi, Messianic Jewish rabbi. Messianic means basically Jews who acknowledge and recognize that Jesus Christ is their Messiah. They call him Yeshua, um, the Hebrew name for Jesus. Yeshua means he saves, and they call him Yeshua HaMashiach. Ha is the Mashiach, is Messiah, so Jesus the Messiah. And um, the rabbi under whom I was studying at the time uh, basically gave a lecture to about 300 um, members of this event. It was in a small church in the Claremont area. And he started off by saying, most of you in this crowd this afternoon are Gentiles. And you are wondering, um, what is the Jewish perspective of the Bible? And, and he said, we Jews are familiar with your Gentile perspective of the Bible. And um, the two are not the same. They're radically different, even though we're working from the same book. And the questions that come up are, if God's Bible design is a Greek linear design versus a Hebrew circular design, might that difference in perception of the design have an impact on the goals, the objectives of the book? What is the target of the book? What are God's goals in introducing us to this book? And if we don't understand the objective or the target or the goal of a journey or of an experience, the question becomes, why are we investing any time or effort into it? Um, you don't want to not understand the goal of the Judeo-Christian walk. Because if you don't, um, either we might be on the wrong path or we need to take an exit off the freeway and perhaps do a 180-degree turn. But this is really a critical study. It's not just a study about geometrical designs, a circle versus a straight line. Um, I wrote this book because... Having been a Gentile, I'm still a Gentile. I'll always be a Gentile. I was born a Gentile. Gentile just simply means a member of the nations. Um, in the singular, in, in Hebrew language, is goy, and in the plural is goyim. So I'm a member of the goyim. And there are only two groups of people that are named in the Bible, which are the Hebrews, the Jews, if you will, and the Gentiles, the people of the nations. That's it. That's what we're talking about. And so um, why would I have an interest in writing a book like this? Well, I'll be honest with you. Um, I, like I said in the last show, I was raised a Catholic for 16 years, 16 formal years. Um, I am now, I think, 47 or 48 years a Protestant. 
Uh, but I've been the last six years studying under a Messianic Jewish rabbi, and no, I'm not converting to Judaism. Everyone asks me that. I'm going, no. <laughs> I'm there to learn the rest of the story. I want to know what happened before the last third of the book. And it's important. It's almost like uh, reading some sort of mystery, and you're reading the conclusion of the book, but you're not really understanding the significance or the relevance of the conclusion of the book is because you didn't read the first two-thirds or someone told you it didn't count or it wasn't relevant or God changed his mind or it's not for us, it's only for them. And those are things that I would hear. Um, and I noticed that in Bible school uh, we gave a whole lot more uh, attention to the New Testament but what was interesting, I noticed that almost all except one of the authors of the New Testament uh, were also Jewish, just like the authors in the Old Testament were all Jewish. So that got me curious as to, are we serving a God that doesn't understand how to do a blueprint? He doesn't know how to design um, a creative uh, imprint to describe journeys and the targets and objectives of those journeys. And I'm thinking, no, actually, God knows exactly what he's doing. And he's not a start-stop type of God. He's not one of those gods that changes his mind. In fact, we have all kinds of verses that says he does not change and uh, in both Testaments. And so I started on a journey myself. And the more I got into this journey, I learned that um, there is a real significant disconnect between trying to read um, what I have concluded to be that the book is more cyclical and circular because of its Hebrew influence by mostly Hebrew authors, 39 out of 40, um, than I ever imagined, and I was trying to use the wrong tools that I was given in Bible school to interpret a circular, cyclical design, and I was given linear, straight-line tools to try to interpret a circle. And I thought to myself, this makes zero sense. So I embarked on that journey to try to get the complete uh, context, the complete background, and the con complete um, parameters, if you will, of this kingdom of God Bible story. So hence, um, the journey began. I think it took me two and a half, three years to write this particular book. But anyway, we're going to pick it up where we left off. Um, if you missed the first show, um, we discussed some of the... Um, background of is the Bible a circle or a Greek straight line or is it a Jewish circle so we're going to pick it up where we left off and where we left off first of oh, all I want to do this here I'm sorry I'm going to read to you the epilogue I'm going to go all the way to the last page of the book and I wanted to summarize I must tell you I have 
somewhat of a what people would call a uh, defect in how my system of reading books. I oftentimes go to the last page first. And the reason I go to the last page first is I want to see what the conclusion is. And, and if it's something that intrigues me, if it's something that interests me, then I'm going to say, oh, okay, I want to read the rest of this. So in the epilogue uh, for this book called The Blueprint, uh, I lay out this um, pattern comparing two cultures uh, as to how the Bible was written and prepared. And the opening paragraph on that last page says, God selected only one of the two cultures illustrated in the columns below to represent his blueprint plan for mankind and earth. And so on the left, I have a Hebrew column, and on the right, I have a Greek column. And so comparing, for example, time, I say, with Hebrew, time is circular or cyclical, but with the Greek, it is neither one. It is linear. Um, as to logic, the Hebrews use what they call block, B-L-O-C-K, logic. Uh, we're going to explain all these in more detail um, as we get into the show. Um, and the Greeks don't use block, block logic. They use linear reasoned logic, straight line. The Hebrews uh, emphasize historical encounters, personal encounters, either corporately or individually, uh, when describing the Bible. The Greeks don't talk about historical encounters so much as they do systematization. In other words, they want to systemize everything. Everything has to be put into, like, for example, I took classes in systematic theology, okay? Um, as to family, um, Hebrew culture emphasizes the tribal aspect or the group called a family. The Greeks, uh, not so much. They uh, emphasize individualism. Um, the goal of what is life all about? Hebrews emphasize more of an earthly goal. Uh, the Greeks, again, not so much. They emphasize more of an ethereal goal. Um, the ethos, if you will. The sweet by and by. Um, the Hebrews, as to virtues or values, um, their moral values are based on law. The Greeks, um, not so much. They uh, emphasize more intellectual virtues. And the reason for that is because the, the highest, the apex for the Greek thinking is the reasoning of the human mind. In other words, with the human mind, you can figure everything out, including God, according to the Greeks. Uh, next column in the Hebrew column, it's that what's emphasized is duty, conscience, and doing. On the Greek side, not so much. What is emphasized is um, thinking and knowing. In Hebrew, um, the word faith or, uh, or trust, um, the Hebrews define faith as faith is trust before belief. I'll say it again. Faith is trust before belief. In other words, it's relational. Um, for the Greeks, they simply say faith is belief. In other words, you can whatever you agree to mentally, that's what you believe in. It's a mental process as opposed to a relational process of trust. 
what's emphasized in the Hebrew, um, here are two words here. Deed is emphasized more with the Hebrew as far as importance. But with the Greek, no. The Greek is more creed. as opposed, In other words, what do you believe in your mind? Uh, Hebrew, uh, what's more important, what they emphasize is practice um, as to what's carried out. The Greek, not so much. What they emphasize is theory. Um, and the last one I have in the Hebrew column is how do they view the world, the cosmos? And that is the Hebrew says God rules slash, but man stewards. The Greeks, not so much. They say man rules creation with science. Okay. And then I ask the question down at the bottom of those, comparing those two columns. After comparing the characteristics of both groups above, can you guess which one God selected for his biblical blueprint? So we'll explore that. So I want to pick up where we left off um, last time. We were talking about what... Um, was really an ideal man uh, for the Hebrews as opposed to what consists of a, ham, a he, ideal man for Greeks. And we left off with Greeks learn in order to understand. That's the reason they're motivated to learn, to comprehend. But the Hebrews, they learn in order to revere. That was from um, a Jewish author named Abraham Heschel. Um, The next level is, or the next question I should say, what is the ideal man as to in the world of um, Hebraism versus Hellenism? Hellenism is, of course, Greek thinking. Hebraism is, is of course, Hebrew thinking. The ideal man of Hebraism is the man of faith or trust. But for the Greek in Hellenism, at least as it came to be the ultimate philosophic expression, with its two greatest philosophers, Greek philosophers now, Plato and Aristotle, the ideal man is not a man of trust or faith, but rather the ideal man for the anyone uh, studying Plato or Aristotle is the man of reason. Again, it's because the Greeks thought the apex of human experience is um, your man's reasoning ability through his mind. Um, The highest ideal for the Greeks is becoming a philosopher who thinks, is the man of reason, who becomes a spectator of all time and existence. And the requirement is the man is supposed to rise above all of these um, that's out of a book um, by William Barrett. So he goes on to say, comparing, again, Greek versus Hebrew, for the Hebrew Dow, a man of faith is a concrete man in his wholeness. And as a Jew, as, as a man of flesh and blood, biblical man was very much bound to the earth. He was earth-focused. But Hebraism does not raise its eyes to the universe and to the abstract, 
but rather its vision is always down here on earth. It's on the concrete. It's on the particular uh, man in the story. The Greeks, on the other hand, uh, as the first thinkers in history, as far as emphasizing the importance of, of reasoning and thinking, they discovered the universal. They discovered the abstract. And they, the Greeks, discovered the timeless essences in all its forms and ideas. Um, the philosopher Plato held that the man lives only in so far as he is living in the eternal. But again, not so much with the, with the Jews. With Hebraism, it uh, doesn't really contain eternal realm of essences. But, um, but the Greek philosophy put forth through Plato uh, affords an intellectual deliverance from the evil of time. The Greeks looked at time as something negative. Uh, the deliverance from time would be possible only for a detached intellect, one who, in Plato's phrase, becomes a spectator of all time and of all existence. So detachment, getting away from it all, leaving the earth behind, getting into the ethos, the, uh, if you will, the spiritual world. But for the Hebrew, detachment or separation was an impermissible state of mind. It was really more of a vice than it was, than it was a virtue. So to sum it up in a nutshell, in the eyes of the Hebrew, the Hebrew was, or man uh, was a creature of earth. Um, this earthly man's knowledge was unlike that of the Greek. The man of this world that God created gained his knowledge. This is a quote from this book of Mr. Barrett. Through the body and blood and bones and bowels, through trust and anger and confusion and love and fear, through his passionate adhesion in trust and in faith to the being, that's a capital B, to the being whom he never can really intellectually know. This kind of personal knowledge uh, a man only has through living, experiencing, not reasoning with his mind. So the Jew, in essence, was a man of the earth who has his own story that's forming through experiences and is going through all of the ups and downs of emotions. The Greek is more detached. He stands back, and he's going to try to figure this out by um, creating principles and uh, formulas and, um, and ways of figuring out the experience of man. Now, there is another um, individual. We're going to talk about block logic here versus linear logic. Um, another author, um, Marvin Wilson, he wrote a book called um, Our Father Abraham, The Jewish Roots to the Christian Faith. And Marvin Wilson explains that the Hebrews often made use of what they called block logic, B-L-O-C-K, which is expressed in self-contained units, or blocks, if you will, of thought. These blocks did not necessarily fit together, in any obviously harmonious or rational pattern, particularly when one block 
represented the human point of view or human perspective on truth, and the other block represented the divine's uh, view of truth, God's view of truth. And this manner of block logic led to contradictions and enigmas um, as to the as if two blocks sometimes were in conflict with one another. But he summarizes and he says, the Semites of the Bible, the Jews of the Bible's times, did not simply think truth. Rather, they experienced truth relationally with God as they walked through life. Big difference. To the Jew, truth was as much an encounter as it was a proposition. To the Jew, the deed was always more important than the creed. I'll say that again. To the Jew, the deed was always more important than the creed or the belief system. The Jew believed that God was ultimately greater than any human attempt at trying to systemize truth. So living the truth, out of John, 1 John 1, 6, living the truth and walking it out in tr- the truth, 2 John chapter 4, for the Jew was much more important than simply logically examining the truth as Greeks would tend to do. So we need to uh, summarize here. This is going to be something that we tackle on the other side of the break, and we are going to talk about Greek versus Hebrew concepts of time. And after we talk about time, we're going to talk about Greek and Hebrew image, I'm sorry, opinions on matter, M-A-T-T-R, M-A-T-T-E-R. Okay? Well, and we'll study the origin of Gnosticism thinking that penetrated Hebrew thought. So we'll get to that on the other side of the break. I think you'll find that interesting. We'll talk to you soon. Welcome back. We are continuing in our study of answering the question um, from a book I wrote six years ago called The Blueprint. Is God's Bible design linear or circular? Or if you will, is God's Bible design Greek linear or Hebrew circular? It makes a difference. We're studying two different cultures. Um, And... um, we're trying to decide, obviously answer some questions of does culture affect the writers who produce a work, uh, including their language, their background, their focus, their orientation, etc. And we oftentimes miss a lot of the cultural um, concepts and thinking how the Hebrew mind works versus contrasted with the Greek mind. They were completely different cultures. One of the few men who crossed both bridges was the Apostle Paul. He grew up in a Greek community, but he was uh, a Pharisee. He was a rabbi. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He studied under the great um, rabbi uh, Gemaliel. And so but he existed in two worlds simultaneously. So he was the perfect candidate 
for uh, Jesus to send him out to the Gentile world after uh, the Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and uh, the other religious structure um, rejected the Acts Church. Now, that doesn't mean all Jews turn their back on on, uh, the gospel. It's not true because most of the believers uh, on the first you know, four, three, four, five chapters of the book of Acts uh, were exclusively Jews, and they were uh, what they would be characterized as Messianic Jews because they believed that Jesus Christ um, of Nazareth was their Jewish Messiah, and he was fulfilling the law and the prophets who spoke about this Messiah hundreds and sometimes thousands of years earlier before he ever came. And uh, sometimes the most effective way to uh, evangelize a person of Jewish background is to use their Jewish scripture in the Old Testament to say, do you realize who the prophets are talking about? And uh, when they study the life and the times of Jesus Christ, it's pretty unmistakable what the connections are. And um, what are the odds? You ask him, what are the math- mathematical odds that these uh, prophecies could be so detailed, so accurate, and uh, that's a good way to start sometimes when doing um, evangelism to, to Jewish people. Anyway, so I want to pick up where we left off, and we want to talk about the different points of view on time. And there's a Greek concept of time, and there's a Hebrew concept of time. Um, but they're pretty much on the opposite ends of the spectrum, so after the um, Council of Nicaea in 325, the West wanted to totally disassociate itself from any Hebrew connections and Hebrew roots. This is after Constantine had a um, come-to-Jesus moment, so to speak. And um, as the time, as the church began to form in the, in the uh, election or the selection of a pope, and it takes basically this is the beginning of the Catholic Church in the fourth century. Um, there is a movement to basically uh, disassociate itself, uh, the church, from its Hebrew um, foundations, its Hebrew roots. What we're going to be talking about uh, how that impacts uh, a book that we still read in the 21st century. And it's important because, for example, um, Let's talk about concepts of time in the sense of a calendar. The West uh, used a solar calendar, and that was called the Julian calendar. That was named after, of course, the Roman, um, its Roman creator, um, the emperor, Julius Caesar. But it was later known as the Gregorian calendar, and that was uh, modified because of the influence of a pope by the name of Gregory. So it's called Gregorian calendar. So that's basically what Gentiles use. However, the Jews don't use that calendar at all. What they used before the Gregorian calendar, before the Julian calendar, they used a combination of a lunar and solar calendar, and it was based on pretty much the revelation in Genesis uh, chapter 1, 14 through 16, that the, there was going to be a marking, a, a moedim, if you will, appointed times to mark the holy days, the jubilee years. Um, which were every 50 years. And then there, were a seven, there was a seven-year, um, what they call a Shemitah cycle, where uh, that involved a relief of debt every seven years. And it was also to allow um, the planted land 
farmland to lay fallow and to recuperate. And the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy can be pretty much, and we have to understand that much of Jewish prophecy is found in the Old Testament. And of course, it talks about the life and times of this Messiah, Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach. But the fulfillment of the Jewish prophecy can really only be appreciated by understanding the Hebrew biblical calendar. Well, their calendar is different than the Gregorian calendar. And as per Genesis 1.14, God specifically created, now listen to this, the luminaries, the sun, the moon, and the stars. This is in Genesis 1.14, to send heavenly signals. It was a communication device to his children at the appointed times on his calendar so that we would be aware of when he wants to meet up with us and how. This is per um, a book that Mark Biltz um, did uh, regarding the blood moons back in 2015. Um, there was another um, Scandinavian author by the name of Thorleif Bowman who wrote a, a book back in 1960, Hebrew Thought Compared with Greek explains that for the Hebrew, we're talking about time now. How does, how does the Hebrew thought consider time? Time was determined and was accomplished by means of time rhythms rather than timelines. I'm going to say it again. Time in the Jewish concept was accomplished through time rhythms rather than timelines. Uh, they had a circular cyclical perception of time, which did not necessarily refer to actual circular lines and shapes, but more to the circular course of life's rhythmic alternations. And we see it all the time, every day. For example, the difference between light and darkness. You see that every day in the, in the uh, daytime and nighttime cycle. Uh, between warmth and cold. Uh, the seasons of the year. Again, cyclical. Uh, the changes of the moon's phases. You know, I'm, uh, I'm a surfer, and uh, we have two uh, daily moon phases, uh, tides, that happen every day. And it, it impacts, you know, it, when fishermen go out. It impacts when surfers go out because it impacts how the, how the waves are shaped. But even human life, looking at it from its rhythmic course of, you know, earth, man, earth, man's created in earth, man is a creation, and then man returns back to earth, so it's cyclical. Hebrews would uh, orient themselves uh, temporally on a time basis more towards the regular changes, listen to this, of the moon's alternating phases rather than the actual circular movement of the sun. So that's why they operate more on a lunar calendar as contrasted with the Gentile solar calendar. So this rhythmic back and forth, this rhythmic alternation concept originates. There's a, a stem word, uh, Hebrew word uh, pronounced D-O-R, door, which uh, can be derived at the same root as D-U-R, door, which means a circular course or a circle, if you will. And these rhythms can be seen, such as in the Jewish circle dances of unbroken unity. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, Jewish dance, but it's oftentimes uh, done in circles when people are uh, holding each other arm in arm. For the Hebrew, their great reality consists of an internally ongoing, in other words, it's continuing on, 
circular cyclical rhythmic repetition. I'll say it again. Circular cyclical rhythmic repetition formed by a beginning, and then later a continuation, and then later concluding with a return to the beginning once again. Okay, so you got a beginning, you got the middle part, which is the continuation, but then concluding with a return to the beginning. And we see that in the book, book of Ecclesiastes. One can see references to the circular cyclical pictures of nature's functions, observing, for example, the wind, uh, the sun, the rivers, um, the, how the sea operates with their tides. And, but all these have alternating rhythmic cycles. Um, there's a lot of uh, truth in what um, we find in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, 3 through 7. Um, there's some questions asked here. What profit has a man from all of his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away, and another generation comes. But the earth, it abides forever. The sun also rises, and the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes towards the south, and then turns around later to the north. The wind whirls around continually and comes again on its circuit. All rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. And to the place from which the rivers come, they return again. Bowman points out that even human life is observed as a cycle. Look at Job 1, uh, 21, chapter 1, verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, this researcher, Brian Knowles, he wrote an article called The Hebrew uh, Mind versus the Western Mind, explains that the Western mind, Greek mind, if you will, functions in terms, uh, this is different now, in prophetic timetables in which the concept of time equates, okay, here we go, to sequential points, sequential, one after the other, sequential points on a forward-facing timeline. Each event in the timeline is a new event, thereby creating a perspective that time is not circular, but rather linear. The Greek concludes that, I'm sorry, uh, the, here Brian Knowles concludes that Westerners or Greek-minded um, Western thinkers desire to have their prophetic timetables. I mean, we talk about a lot, a lot of prophecy in the Bible, uh, but they, does, uh, the Westerners desire to have their Prophetic timetables set in nicely arranged units of time and space. Going back to the Jew. For the Jew, the sequential order in which God acts is of no great concern to him at all. The main point is that God will carry out what he intends to do in God's own time. For example, when the words, the day of the Lord, we see that a lot. Uh, for the Hebrew is the day or time when the Lord acts. The sequential order of when the Lord acts is of no great importance to the Jew. All that's important for him is to know that the Lord will indeed act. 
For the Greek, time is primarily spatial and is represented as a straight line upon which we Westerners stand, picture yourself standing on a straight line, looking forward to the future before us and with our past behind us. All present, past, and future verb tenses in our language are expressed by and through points on a straight line, which can be without limit. So this is a linear type of thinking. It stemmed from the ancient Greek philosophies, namely those influenced by the Greek thinkers Aristotle and Plato. But the the Greek has a contempt for time because it seems to be um, it's a characteristic of human thoughts almost everywhere. Um, to the Greek mind, time compared with eternity appeared empty, appeared irrelevant, it, it appeared essentially unreal. Things that happen in history are of little importance to the Greek. Only the timeless is truly relevant. It would, now, we're ta- again, we're talking Greek philosophy. It was the glory of Greece to have discovered the idea of the cosmos, the world of space. Time for the non-prophetic man is the dark destroyer, and history is at the bottom meaningless, and it's a monotonous repetition of hatred and bloodshed and armistice. That's from Abraham uh, Herschel, and comparing the Greek mind with the Jewish mind. But another, according to um, another researcher, uh, Mr. Bowman, Aristotle analyzed time from a natural science viewpoint stating that successive movements on the image of a time I'm sorry successive movements on an image of a line actually represents time the line may be circular to indicate objective or physical or astronomical chronometry in other words the study of the move, of the movement of the sun the movement of the moon or the stars or it could be straight which is required to define grammatical time like the past tense the present tense or our future tense when we speak but Plato, unlike Aristotle, he, he analyzed time from a religious viewpoint. He focused primarily on eternity, and his concept of time was mostly related to the category of inner life, events, and history. He believed that the consciousness is primary and physical movement is secondary. Both Aristotle and Plato agreed that time is inferior to space and therefore it is viewed as destructive rather than constructive. So as a result, everything deteriorates under the continuing pressure of time. And therefore, time as understood by the Greeks was certainly viewed with contempt. Again, let's go back to the Hebrews. It's different, radically different. In contrast, for the Hebrew, time is not determined by its passing, but rather by its content. What do you mean by that? Well, for example, the heavenly luminaries emit differing intensities of light and warmth. And in that way, they define time. For example, the time when the sun is dominant, straight up overhead, um, it gives light. And it's a warmth giver. It's by definition, because of its content, it's light and it's warm would be a reflection that it is day. But the time when the moon is dominant and its light uh, is given off together with the stars, it gives illumination 
but it's different. It's different from that of the sun, and it's considered night. He gets that from Genesis 1.16. So one of the best examples to see how Hebrews would describe time by its content can be found in the third chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. So I'm sure you're uh, familiar with this. I think even going back to the 60s, um, there was a rock group named The Birds, and they they made a uh, song on this using these these very verses. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill, kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and the time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, S-E-W, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, and a time to war and a time of peace. Well, Heschel, Abraham Heschel, um, concluded, he is the Jewish um, rabbi, the philosopher, he said, it was the achievement of the nation of Israel to have experienced history, the world of time. Judaism claims that time is exceedingly relevant. In other words, they didn't view time with contempt like the Greeks. No, time for them was very important. It was elusive, but at the same time, it was pregnant with seeds of eternity in it. Significant to God and decisive for the destiny of man are the things that happen in time and in history. Biblical history, according to the Jew, is the triumph of time over space. History is the supreme witness for God. And we must remember that God is involved in all of our doings and that meaning is given not only in the timeless but rather primarily in the timely, in that task given in the here and now. For time is but a little lower than eternity, and history is a drama in which both man and God have a stake. That's Abraham um, Heschel. And so I asked the question, can you now see how the Hebrew explained time by its content um, differently than how the Greek views time. And I summarize here by simply saying the verses cited in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and the quotes from Professor Herschel uh, delineate seasons or time frames that describe real human emotions and experiences that would occur often cyclically in people's lives. The Hebrew point of view of time being described by its content uh, aids us, assists us Westerners in understanding how the Hebrew temporarily, temporarily, in a time fashion, engaged the world experientially. Okay, so that's it for time. I think we have time for matter. We'll try to see how we're doing. 
Okay, we have about five minutes, so let's see if we can get this done. The Greek and Hebrew opinions on matter are not the same at all. They had a drastically varying viewpoint in regards to tangible matter, our physical bodies along with the physical earth that we inhabit, and the role that matter uh, plays in our lives. Uh, Starting with the Greeks first, one of the most influential of the ancient Greek uh, philosophers was um, Plato, and his philosophy of uh, Platonism originated with the philosopher Plato who viewed humans and their lives and their world in a dualistic manner, in other words, in two different ways. It was a bifurcated view. In other words, um, it was divided in half. And it was eventually influenced much of the ancient heretical belief of Gnosticism, which was something that Paul addressed um, in, let's see, let me think here. I will come across it here in one of his... Um, Epistles. Gnosticism um, taught that matter, including the human body, was essentially evil. And the reason was is that the Gnostics um, in the Greek world believed that um, they had a second string level of gods called the Demurge. And the Demurge were defective gods, if you will. And whatever defective gods created uh, would in turn be defective. And their belief system, the Gnostics believed that Demurge created Earth. Um, for example, uh, if mat- all matter is, is uh, evil, the Gnostics even taught that Jesus could not have been God in the flesh because the body as matter was evil. Likewise, the human body was considered to be a defective and obsolete place of confinement or imprisonment of man's pure in immortal soul. So simply put, to summarize it, the spirit was good, but all matter was evil. The only problem with that viewpoint is if you look back at uh, how Genesis chapter 1 ends, when Father God creates everything in the earth, he has an opinion on matter, and he weighs in on page, I'm sorry, in chapter 1, the last verse of Genesis, he says, and then God saw everything that he had made. Now, of course, we includes the earth and man, and we can see that in verse 26 on down. Everything that he made, and it indeed was very good. So God has a radically different opinion than the Greek philosophers or Gnostics. The earth wasn't just good. It was very good. And so the reason this isn't coming up in the first place is that I wrote a book called um, God Has a Problem on His Hands, and I couldn't understand why there was seemingly, to me, an overemphasis on this on heaven as being the goal of the Christian experience. I didn't see that in the Scripture. Again, I, I'm not anti-heaven. I love heaven. When I die, I want to go to heaven. Um, I believe in heaven, and I want to go there. Okay, so let's make that clear. But I never really saw any verse that said the goal of the Christian life is to go to heaven. Um, Jesus said he came to give us life, and then he defined eternal life as knowing the Father in John seventeen three and the Son whom he sent. So that's a relationship with God. That's something restorative that we need to be um, restored in, reconciled to, because that's what we lost in the garden. So long story short, 
the reason it's important to go back and study why the Greeks and the Gnostics um, were so ethos, ethereal bound, is because they thought everything that was created by God was inherently evil. And that's why it's important to make the distinctions. Are we interpreting that God's design in a Hebrew way by 39 out of the 40 authors or in a Greek Gnostic way because it depends and it can throw off the goals and the targets of our Christian, Judeo-Christian walk. This is not some exercise to learn about the differences of Greek and Jews. It's to figure out what God's goals are and how he defined them and through which group. So we have to wrap things up. I will see you next week. We will pick it up uh, where we left off here. God bless you, saints, and see you on the other side. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth.net at gmail.com that's earl simple truth at gmail.com so until next time may god richly reveal his simple truth moments to you you've been listening to simple truth moments join reverend earl clampett for another episode next sunday at 11 a.m right here on k praise greetings k three-star general michael j flynn head of the pentagon intelligence agency knew all the government's dirty secrets he was one of the most respected generals in the military flynn knew what the intel world had been up to he understood its funding he ordered the first audit of the use of contractors this set off alarm bells the explosive new documentary flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost and covers the facts behind this scandal flynn told the truth he was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.